God's Word, John chapter 7. I'll be reading just from verses 37 through 39 before Ben comes to preach. This is the Word of the Lord. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. To you uh, bow your heads with me in prayer, please? Father, we thank you for this great passage this morning. We thank you that you quench our thirst in ways that are not possible outside of your son, Jesus. Lord, as we open your word this morning, reveal to us who Jesus is and what we should do with him in our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, yesterday, I guess two days ago, Friday, um, I went uh, camping with my son, Samuel. Uh, we decided that uh, we were going to camp out for a night, and then the next morning, uh, we would go climb a 14er. Uh, Mount Bierstadt, if you've heard of it, is right here on the Front Range. It's very close. And so we thought, Let's, this would be a good time. Uh, we'll just go up and we'll find some BLM, some uh, Bureau of Land Management land, where you can just kind of throw your tent up wherever you'd like. Of course, there are no facilities. There are no water. There is no water uh, in these campsites. So um, being a, uh, what I deem maybe a wise father, I thought, I'll just bring a huge jug of water with us, one of those Rubbermaid, those orange Rubbermaid jugs, you know, with the tap at the bottom. So, uh, you know, of course, we're, we're driving up in my forerunner. If you've get, taken 285, it's this way and that way. You're back and forth. And about halfway up, I hear this thunk in the back. And I said, you know, that, I thought to myself, you know, I think that might be the water, but it's got a tight lid on top. So we don't need to worry. Let's just keep going. Well, sure enough, when we get to our campsite and I open the back door and the passenger floor, here's my water jug tipped over and completely empty. There is no water, and there is no uh, really way for us to get clean water easily. So thankfully, we did have some drinking water with us, and I had filled up our camelbacks, our backpacks, with, with water for the hike the day before. So I thought, we'll be okay, but we have oatmeal to eat tomorrow morning. How am I going to get enough clean water for this oatmeal? So we get out of the creek, and we did find a creek at our campsite. We went down the creek, filled up the thing, boiled the water the next morning, ate our oatmeal with it, and we were on our way. Everything seemed quite fine. Until about an hour and a half into the hike, Samuel says, Dad, I need to, I need to sit down. I said, what's going on, buddy? My stomach doesn't feel good. Exactly. Uh-oh. So... That's exactly what I thought to myself. I said, I don't know what could be going on here. Um, you know, this could just be simple dehydration. He's not feeling well. Or this could be the fact that I boiled the water from the creek, but maybe I didn't boil it long enough. Well, uh, we were fortunate. The, the, the Lord was kind to us. We were able to summit. And to Samuel's credit, he pushed through. 
what I think ultimately was more likely altitude sickness than it was anything related to the water. But we got to the top and back home safely. But it reminded me of the need that we have, that our physical bodies have for water. In fact, we're made up, 67% of our bodies is water. And we need water, not just any kind of water. Just like some of you recognized when I was sharing my story, it needs to be clean water. It can't be dirty water. It'll make us sick. It can't be salt water. Salt water kills. It needs to be clean water. And it's really no different for us spiritually. In fact, I would say it's an even of a greater importance for us spiritually. What it is that we take into our bodies. And in fact, there are many counterfeit spiritual liquids, if you will, that promise satisfaction. But as we're going to see this morning in our passage, only Jesus can truly satisfy. As we sang, only Jesus can really give us the rest that we need. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. So I've entitled our sermon this morning, Come to Me and Drink. So first, we're, we're going to look at Jesus' offer, and then we'll look at the responses of the different Jews around him. And finally, we're going to look at what this means for us and what our response ought to be. So the first point in your outline, Jesus' offer, just as a little bit of context here in our passage this morning in chapter 7, verse 37 through 52, the first 36 verses and the, the rest of today's passage all take uh, place in the context of the, the Feast of Booths, or sometimes referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's been about six months after John chapter 6, uh, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and reveals himself as the true food. Uh, and in six months from now, believe it or not, that's how quickly this story progresses. Six months from now, Jesus will be back in Jerusalem for the final Passover and, and for his final hour. Now for us to really understand the complete significance of what Jesus is saying and to put ourselves into the shoes of the people who heard him say it, we must know a little bit about the Feast of Booths. So God commanded the Jews to keep the feast, to give thanks, and remember his provision for them during their 40-year desert wanderings. It was also a way to give thanks for his provision for the tree and vine harvest. The field harvest in Israel takes place in the spring. And in the, the, the fall time frame, September, October time frame, they, they harvest from the tree and the vine. And it was a way to give thanks for that. And lastly, it was a way to pray for rain. Well, why is that last port part important? So again, the, the, the feast takes place in September and October. And frankly, at that time of the year, Israel looks a lot like Colorado does, at least in a normal summer. I think we're having a little wetter summer than normal. But the the the, the the ground is, is parched and yellow. Many cisterns would be, would be dry and empty, empty holes in the ground. Springs of water would just be dusty ditches. And so without the drenching, life-giving rains of the late fall and winter, the land would not be renewed. It wouldn't yield its fruit. Those rains were needed to nourish the land so that it would yield grain again the next spring. So... Again, the Feast of Booths, they, they made these shelters, and that really was the main feature of this feast. There was also a significant ritual that took place every day. And this is important for, for understanding our passage this morning. In fact, it's also important for understanding next week's sermon as well. 
The priests would draw water from the pill of Siloam and proceed up to the altar where they would march around it once and then pour out the water. They did this the first six days of the feast. And then on the last day, the seventh day, they would actually do the same thing, but then they would march around the altar seven times before pouring out the water. And it kind of put an exclamation mark on the end of the feast, as if, as if they were saying, God, we thank you for your provision of all that we needed in the desert, including bringing water out of a rock, not once, but twice. And God, we plead with you once again, bring rain to renew our land and provide for us again. It's likely that there was even a spiritual aspect to this water-pouring ceremony. Throughout the Old Testament, the outpouring and the flowing of water is associated with spiritual renewal. So, uh, Isaiah 12, verse 13 says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And both the prophets Ezekiel and Zechariah, uh, in their visions and their prophecies, depict water flowing out of the temple, as if an indication or a, a, a prophecy about the blessing that God said Abraham would be to all of the nations, this blessing of salvation that would come through the nation of Israel. So on the last day of the feast, with these thoughts in the minds of all the Jewish worshipers, Jesus stands up in the temple. Now this standing up seems like a small thing when a teacher teaches a class, he or she stands up, when the preacher Stands up, he preaches. He doesn't do it from sitting down. Well, in the temple, in those times, the rabbis typically sat when they taught. They did not stand. But here is Jesus. He's standing up and he's teaching. He's drawing extra attention to himself. It's not, it's so important rather that it's not enough to simply state what he's about to say. That's how important it is what he's about to say. So we need to listen. He stands up and he cries out, literally cries out and speaks with a loud voice. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The people had just been at the feast. And it was the last day. And the priests had done the water pouring ceremony. And it was a joyous and hopeful time, as Rick told us about last week. Hope for the provision of water that they would replenish the land and sustain their lives. And now Jesus stands up and says, I can give you the water that you need. The provision in the desert for 40 years that you've been remembering this last week. The wells of salvation prophesied about in Isaiah. The living water flowing out of the temple that Ezekiel and Zechariah spoke of. I will give you that water. This is the same water that he offered the woman at the well in chapter 4. There in verses 13 and 14 he says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, if you are thirsty, come and drink from me and never thirst again. Be quenched and filled forever. What does Jesus say? about getting his living water. He says three things. First is a condition, if you thirst. And then there's two then statements. You must come and you must drink. So let's look at what it means to be thirsty. 
Thirst is a function of one of the deepest parts of our brains. It's called the hypothalamus. There's a feedback loop in our bodies between our organs and the hypothalamus. When our organs send certain signals, our brain responds with a very strong signal. Drink now. It is one of the most basic functions of the human brain on par with sleeping and, and eating. We never consciously decide to be thirsty. It actually happens outside of our conscious thought. We might decide to drink in, in advance of becoming thirsty as a way to prevent thirst from coming on. But the actual sensation of thirst is not something we control. It is the same with our spiritual lives. All people are born with the thirst for spiritual significance. We all want a taste of the holy. And so we seek many ways to quench that thirst, whether it be money, leisure, experiences, work, kids, pleasure, and on and on and on. Think of how much time we spend thinking about material goods. The next thing that you want to buy. Car, house, collectible item, tech gear, a TV, clothing, whatever it is. And whether we consciously or unconsciously, whether consciously or unconsciously, we think that the next thing will satisfy, but it never does. In fact, it is only a matter of time until we fixate on the next thing. Psychologists call this the hedonic treadmill. Some of you already know where I'm going. And we get on these, these treadmills of, of hedonism, chasing pleasure after pleasure, but we never get anywhere. We strive after accomplishment and seek after significance, but much like our material purchases, there is no end. Once you get to the top, you always discover that there's another level above you. We keep to ourselves and revel in the autonomy of our obscurity, complimenting ourselves and our humility and lack of need for significance, when in reality, it's not that we've actually had our thirst quenched, but have decided instead that the risk of trying and failing isn't worth it. We seek satisfaction in diet. And the options are endless and always changing to the latest and greatest. Ten years ago, very few had ever heard the word keto or ketosis. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I guarantee you it's at least two-thirds of you have heard that word. Now it is the diet of choice for many. Before that, it was paleo. Before that, it was Atkins. Before that, it was Weight Watchers. Before that, it was Jenny Craig. I'm dating myself, aren't I? And it won't be long until there is another diet to come along which will surely satisfy. Fitness is a place many try to quench their thirst. I recently went to get fitted for a new pair of running shoes. I met with a salesman and he asked me what ailed me. And I, I told him, I said, I, I feel like my lung capacity isn't what it should be. I wish I could go faster, breathe deeper. Well, it turns out lung capacity was a challenge for this guy too. Or he was just a really good sales guy. I don't know. <laughs> well, he became very animated as he described a recently discovered breathing technique. Then we talked running shoes. And he became very animated as he described a new type of running shoe that is designed to help you run faster. But as this young man spoke to me, I couldn't help but think about how he seemed to be looking for the latest and greatest. 
Now, he didn't claim any spiritual benefit from his breathing technique or from running, but it was clear to me that this is where he was completely invested. Religion itself is how many try to quench their spiritual thirst. The thing with religion, the reason it seems so great, is that it's spiritual. Religion understands that most worldly pleasures will not satisfy. So religion looks outside of this world and provides, and looks upward, if you will, or at least outside of this world, and provides all the rules on how to get there. And that's what makes religion the most insidious of all these thirst quenchers. It plays upon our kind of inborn human belief that if we work hard enough, if we do the right things, if we believe the right things, we will find favor with God and be satisfied with ourselves. We can say, self, look at what you've done. You've loved your wife. You've loved your kids. You've given money to the church, served at the church, been a good neighbor, an employee. Well done. God will surely accept you for these things. The hardest fake to spot is the one which appears closest to the real thing. If I set before you a glass of pure spring water and a glass of dirty pond water, you would know which one to drink. But if I set before you a glass of pure spring water and a glass drawn from a flushed toilet bowl, it would be difficult. They are both clear. They're both completely odorless. They would probably taste the same, but they are completely different. It's the same with religion. It looks like the real thing, feels like the real thing, and can quench spiritual thirst in ways that other material and earthly pursuits cannot, but ultimately it is a fake and will not satisfy. This is why Jesus got so fired up at the Pharisees, because he knew that what they were teaching was false. And it was just going to leave the people short of what they really needed, which was Jesus himself. It's much easier to attempt to quench thirst for spiritual significance than to recognize the root issue. In fact, as I said at the start, true thirst, which only Jesus can quench, isn't something that you can manufacture. It only comes from outside of ourselves. It only comes when the Holy Spirit stirs in our mind and our emotions and our will to show us our true nature, that we are sinners without excuse before a holy God. Romans tells us that every person is born with a conscience that tells them right from wrong and that we are continually defending and excusing ourselves for our behavior and thinking. But without the supernatural awakening of the Holy Spirit, we can't tie that nagging feeling back to God and his standard. We are simply left saying, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Until we are awakened to the true reality of sin, that the measuring stick for our sin is not how we compare to others, but how we compare to God, we will never feel thirst for something more than stuff or accomplishments 
or experiences or even religion, those things will satisfy us at least temporarily. But when the Holy Spirit moves and makes our hearts alive, when he comes into us and gives us the new birth that we learned about in John chapter 3, removing our stony hearts and replacing them with spiritually alive hearts, we will know true thirst for the very first time. We reckon ourselves rightly, seeing that we are ruined by sin and that we do not measure up. Welling up in us is a thirst for satisfaction, a thirst for relief, a thirst for rest from the heavy burden of sin. Jesus begins his offer with a condition. If anyone thirsts. And as I said before, it is a statement of logic. It's an if-then statement. He's made his conditional statement. If, now then you must come and you must drink. Let's look at what it means to come. I have three children, and as you are aware, it is summertime. Summer break is past the halfway point. Mom's saying hallelujah. It really is moving quickly, though. But sometimes the days are slow and even boring for the kids. By 10 a.m., they've ridden their bikes, jumped on the trampoline, swung on the swing, practiced piano, done their chores, and used up all their screen time on the computer. And so the complaint becomes, I'm bored. There's nothing to do. So their mother rattles off 10 more things that they haven't done yet, to which they respond, but I don't want to do those things. Indeed, sometimes we know our need and how to fix it, but lack the will to do so. It's like this knot that I've had in my back for the last four days. I know that if I go see a massage therapist or maybe even a chiropractor, there's a good chance they'll be able to deal with it and it'll go away. But I just don't like the idea of going to the doctor. I just, I want to like sleep one more night and maybe when I wake up, it'll be gone tomorrow. But true spiritual thirst will not go away. Now it may ever flow, but it will never be quenched until you come to Jesus. Salvation requires more than just acknowledging your need. Even the demons believe and shudder. You must do something about it. It's not enough for your head to know you are a sinner. You must act. But coming to Jesus stops just short of being fully satisfied. Remember the rich young ruler? What did he do? He came to Jesus. Jesus, what must I do to enter into your kingdom? Well, have you done all these things? Yes, I've done all these things. Okay, then sell all your goods. Come and follow me. And what happened? The rich young ruler was unable, because he was very wealthy and he loved his stuff, to sell it and follow Jesus. He wasn't willing to give up what he had for Christ. So he came, but he did not drink. So you must come and you must drink. It reminds me of the ill person who, seeing their need for healing, comes to the doctor, is prescribed a medicine to take on a daily basis, and agrees with the doctor, yes, I will faithfully take this medicine. I want to be made well. 
And upon leaving the doctor's office, promptly forgets to go to the pharmacy, never takes the medicine, and as a result, is never made well. Friends, it is not enough to come and just be around Jesus. It's not enough to just come and be around his people. Those are good things, but they aren't the thing or the thing. It's like going to the doctor's office when you aren't well. That's good, but it's not enough. You must follow through with what the doctor says to do. In the same way, church and a moral lifestyle and being a good person are good things, but they aren't enough. What we need is Jesus himself. We must believe in him and on him, putting our full faith and trust in him. Jesus told his disciples in chapter 6 that whoever feeds on his flesh and drinks his blood will have eternal life because his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. But you must feed on this. It must be your life. Drinking of Jesus is more than just adding him to your life or calling him, calling on him when times are tough. He must become your life. This is why Jesus stands up at the end of this feast. One commentator wrote, Divine blessing is not to be wished and prayed for superstitiously. You might say it's not to be just pray for Jesus when you think you need him or just show up at church when it is good for you. Divine blessing is not to be wished and prayed for superstitiously in traditional rituals at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. But listen to this. It is provided directly through the tabernacling one. That is Jesus standing right before them. We might say the same thing. Hoping to have one's thirst quenched through behaviors and associations is never going to work. Only Jesus himself, a personal relationship with him and obedience and submission to him are the only way to be satisfied. Jesus stands up and says, I have the water that you've been looking for. If you want to be satisfied, if you want relief, if you want rest, come to me and take it in. Take me in. All of me. Believe in me. Then you will know real life. In verse 38, he says, not only will you know life, but you will be a blessing to others as well. Verse 38 and 39, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now just a brief interpretive note. Jesus used the term living water in John chapter 4, verse 10, with the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, to indicate eternal life. Here he uses the term to refer to the Holy Spirit. The two go together. Wherever the Holy Spirit is accepted, he brings eternal life. And note how John points out that the Spirit had not yet been given. Later in John's gospel, we'll see Jesus talk about why he must go away. If he doesn't, the Holy Spirit won't come to all believers. And so a theological note, if you will, on that. The Holy Spirit has always been present. The Holy Spirit has always been working. But he hasn't, but at this point at least, he wasn't sent to be with each believer 
until Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Since then, he comes to all who believe in Jesus as their Savior. So I think we have to ask, why was Jesus so excited about the coming of the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm sure there are a number of reasons. But he had experienced the Holy Spirit intimately. He knew the power and the strength that the Holy Spirit gives with a specific end in mind, to make much of the Son of God, to make much of Christ. And he knew the blessing that believers would be to the world around them. Now, to be clear, this blessing is not salvation. Only God gives salvation, but believers are the means by which that blessing of the good news of salvation comes. They are the conduit through which God has chosen to proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. And the blessing isn't limited to proclaiming the gospel. It includes the full spectrum of common grace as well. There are examples in everyday life, but one of the greatest in the last couple centuries is William Wilberforce, who from his Christian convictions led the slavery slavery abolition movement in England's parliament. Closer to home, consider Alternatives Pregnancy Centers. This ministry to pregnant moms and dads was born out of a Christian conviction that human life begins at conception and that every human life has dignity and worth because each person is an image bearer of God. I think that in time, and I hope that it is sooner than later, we will look back on abortion in much the same way we look on slavery today. In shame and regret and righteous anger. Shouldn't we be praying that God would raise up a William Wilberforce of the pro-life movement? Who, who from his Christian convictions and overflow of the Holy Spirit leads the world out of death out of the death of abortion, into the dignity of life. Now, you may think, I'm not William Wilberforce. I'm not that person. I don't have the drive, means, wherewithal, talents, gifting, or passion that that man had. That man, that man had. You might be right, but you can still be a blessing to others. You can still do that. In fact, most of us, the vast majority of us, are called to what seem like small Blessings, but faithfulness, even in the little things, can result in large blessings. Consider the kindness of the story of Ruth. It hasn't been that long ago since we as a church went through Ruth. And if you'll recall, Naomi was kind to Ruth. She didn't need to be. Ruth's husband had died. There was no connection there. And Ruth, in return, was kind to Naomi Again, no reason for her to stay with her. Probably made more sense to go back home to her family. And then, of course, Boaz, who showed great kindness to both Ruth and Naomi. They were simply being good to one another in the way that God had been good to them. But through these small acts of kindness, through that blessing came King David. And eventually, Jesus himself. So even though these people didn't think that they were saving the world, God used them to do just that. That's the power of the Holy Spirit 
in us. Well, we've seen Jesus' offer of eternal life. Let's look at point two in our outlines now. Let's look at the Jews' responses. And as you'll see as we look through these, I want you to notice how divided these responses are. We're going to look at two groups, the crowd in verses 40 through 44, and then the religious authorities in verses 45 through 52. So I'll just read verses 40 through 44 for you. When, he heard these, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So the first group says that Jesus must be the prophet. Now they were thinking about the prophet in the way of Moses, the way that Moses was a prophet for Israel. The second group says that he is the Christ. And while they have rightly identified Jesus, in fact, he is the Christ, we're not sure exactly, I don't think we can be sure exactly, what they meant. If they understood that Jesus was their own personal Messiah to save them, or if they were thinking more in terms of a a, a geopolitical deliverer who would deliver them out from underneath Roman rule. We don't know that for sure, but at least they have rightly identified him. Well, and the last crowd introduces prejudice into their thinking. They say the Christ doesn't come from Galilee. Well, on the one hand, they're right. The Messiah was not prophesied to come from Galilee. But of course, Jesus is not from Galilee, but from Bethlehem, the city of David, according to the Old Testament prophecy. I think this is an excellent example of the irony that John so frequently uses in his gospel. I mean, it's throughout the scriptures. Think about the irony that took place with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. The irony of the woman at the well asking for water when, in fact, Jesus could give her living water. I think John uses that irony to show us that things are not always what they seem. We must dig deeper before settling our minds. Well, this crowd is divided. What about the religious officials? Well, the first group are the temple guard. This guard was to do the bidding of the Sanhedrin. There were a panel of Jewish Pharisees that passed down legal judgments when there had been an infraction of Jewish law. And back in verse 32, if you look, the temple officers were sent out by the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus. And now they come back, but without Jesus. And the priests and the Pharisees ask, in effect, uh, what happened? Where is he? Well, they reply in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, these temple guardsmen spent a lot of time in the temple. They weren't fully educated like the Pharisees, but they did have religious training and would have been exposed to a lot of teaching by virtue of being in the temple. But after hearing the rabbi Jesus teach, they say, no one ever spoke like this man. He spoke as one with authority. He didn't reference other rabbis. He spoke from his own authority. And just note that these temple officers could have said that they were in fear of the crowds. That probably would have been an easier way out. That, that if they had arrested the crowds, arrested Jesus rather, the crowds would have turned on them. But that's not what happened. That's not what they said. They heard his teaching 
And they were in fear of him, not the crowds. Well, the second group of religious authorities are the Pharisees. In verses 47 through 49, they fire back in contempt and anger and insecurity and hatred. Have you been deceived like these crowds, they asked the officers. Look at us, the ones who are enlightened and informed. Have we believed in Jesus? This crowd that does not know the law, they're accursed. Now, the, the crowd, the Pharisees would often refer to as the crowd as people of the land. So these people of the land, they weren't educated. They didn't know the law. They didn't know the Torah or the Mishnah. And since they didn't know these things, then they certainly couldn't follow them, and therefore they are accursed. We know, and we know that this man is not the Messiah. Their reaction is damnable, if not predictable. Don Carson writes, The religious authorities boast that they have not been duped. Their very boasting is precisely what duped them. In verses 50 and 51, we come to Nicodemus who suggests that they should at least give Jesus a hearing. Before we make a judgment, shouldn't we at least hear what this man has to say? John points out that this is the same Nicodemus that came to Jesus at night and learned what it means to be born again. It is no coincidence that John weaves Nicodemus back into the story again. In fact, we will see after Jesus' death that Nicodemus we don't know where he is right now, but we do know by the end of this story that he is on the path to salvation. And finally, the Pharisees conclude by revealing the depth of their hypocrisy and self-deception. They turn their attack from the temple guard to Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? As Warren Wearsby said, when you cannot answer the argument, attack the speaker. And they further their hatred and lies, saying, Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Of course, we know, and surely these Pharisees knew, that indeed John the prophet, Jonah, excuse me, Jonah the prophet came from Galilee. So why would they so blatantly lie? Psychologists call this confirmation bias, meaning that when we have decided that something is true, we have a tendency to look for data that confirms what we believe. And on the flip side, to disregard, dismiss, and in extreme cases, deny obvious facts in order to maintain what we believe is true. I think confirmation bias is an effect of the fall and a manifestation of our sinful natures. And there are fewer instances where it is more clearly displayed than here. And in fact, it reminds me of Acts chapter 7 where Stephen stands up and he gives this great sermon starting from Abraham and wrapping up with telling the Pharisees that they've completely missed the boat. And when he finished preaching, Luke records that, quote, they cried out, this is the Pharisees, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They stopped their ears because they didn't want to hear the truth. They needed things to be their way. What we've seen in these responses from the crowd and the religious authorities is division. Jesus' life, his words, his demands, they divide people. 
He knew they would. Jesus himself said he came to divide. Luke 12, verse 51. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, Jesus came to bring peace, but it was peace between God and man. Jesus knew what he was about, and he knew it would cause division. And what is that dividing line? What is it that caused so much division? It is belief and unbelief. It is this simple question. Will you come to him and drink? So I want to look at the last point in our outlines now, our response. All that matters is belief and unbelief. Have you come to Jesus and drank? Is he your all in all? For the disciple of Jesus here this morning, commentators point out that a believer, since the believer has received God's Holy Spirit, the believer would not thirst again. And of course, technically, they are right. But as we sang just before this sermon, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Disciple of Jesus, does your soul still long after Jesus? Do you still long after him? You know, they say that once you're over 40 years old, we have a tendency to stop learning. We become comfortable. We sort of learned all that we need to know in life. We're comfortable with where we are. What else is it that's really going to change us? That's not the heart of Christ. That's not a believer and a follower of Jesus. We need to constantly be yearning and thirsting for the satisfaction that Jesus gives. And ultimately, that thirst will be satisfied. Right? What did Jesus say? He said, whoever hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they will be satisfied. But until that day, may we always be thirsty for more of Jesus. Let it never be the case that we think we have completely quenched our thirst for him. For those of you here this morning who may not know Jesus in a saving way, I just have a word of caution and a word of encouragement for you. My caution is this. And Lars said this two weeks ago, and I think it bears repeating. If you come here on a regular basis and you're with God's people on a regular basis, and yet you have not actually, and you're sort of wetting your mouth with Jesus, but you're not actually taking him in. You're not actually being filled up with the water that leads to, to life eternal. A hospice website said this, when people are dying, let me back up. When people are dying, they often lose their sense of hunger or thirst. A website I found said this. This is a sign that body systems are starting to shut down. Death may be days or hours away. The patient may feel comfortable, but it doesn't mean that they are okay. I think it's very similar in spiritual terms. 
If you come here, you're being sort of inoculated. You're being vac- uh, vaccinated, immune to the things of God. You need to actually drink Jesus in. That's my caution to you. My plea to you is this. If you are thirsty, come and drink. Notice that Jesus, he gives you two conditions. Come and drink. He doesn't say, you need to clean yourself up, then come and drink. He doesn't say, you need to get everything figured out in your life, then come and drink. He doesn't say, you need to have me completely figured out, then come and drink. All he says is that if you thirst, come to me and drink. I plead with you this morning, if that's who you are and where you are at, come to Jesus and drink and be satisfied. Would you please stand with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the living water of your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit that you've given us through his death and resurrection. Lord, I pray that we, as those who who are believers in you, that follow you, that we would feel renewed this morning in our desire to be followers of your Son, Jesus, to walk with him, to read his scriptures, to pray. And I pray for those that are here this morning that aren't sure, Lord, that they would come to you and drink for the very first time and be satisfied, be filled, and to find rest from the burden of sin. We ask these things in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen.